But first to Myanmar, where it seems the military is facing its biggest challenge since it seized power in a coup more than two years ago. An alliance of armed ethnic groups have delivered the military junta a serious territorial defeat, cut off key trading routes and seized towns and dozens of outposts near the Chinese border. As our next guest will explain, this alliance is posing a real military challenge to the coup leaders. But there are many other moving parts as well, as you'll hear, including the response from China, which relates to some of those horrible scam mills that are operating out of secretive dystopian compounds in Myanmar. Yes, there's quite a bit to take in. What does it all mean for the National Unity uh, Government, which was founded following the 2021 coup, to restore democracy to Myanmar? I'll let Richard Horsey walk us through it. Richard is the Senior Myanmar Advisor for the International Crisis Group, the ICG. He lived in Myanmar for 20 years and has left just prior to the coup. Hello there, Richard. Hello, Geraldine. Could you explain why there's this escalation of conflict in Myanmar, please? What's happening? Well, this alliance uh, of groups in the northeast of Myanmar along the China border, they launched an offensive on the 27th of October. And, you know, they'd been preparing uh, for this for some time. Uh, It was an offensive of some force uh, uh, consisting of thousands uh, of well-armed and pretty well-trained troops. And I think a little bit to their surprise, they managed to overrun a lot of Myanmar military uh, bases uh, and some towns rather quickly. And so it's it's moved much more uh, much more quickly and much more decisively than I think uh, anyone would have expected. Have they become much cleverer, more unified with better tactics and strategy or um, have has the um, has the junta declined? I think there's a combination of factors uh, since the coup, uh, the Myanmar military has been fighting uh, many different groups on on many different fronts. It's overstretched. It has quite low morale. And its support base has has withered. The Myanmar military's support base, which has never been strong, has has really withered. So uh, this is a moment of historical weakness for the Myanmar military. At the same time, these these groups on the border have been preparing for a long time and they've seen that now might be a good moment to attack. China is maybe taking a slightly different position than it would in the past. Yes, we'll come to that. Very interesting, China's position. Do these armed ethnic groups predate the coup? They do. Uh, the three involved in, in the Shan State operation have been around or reactivated for around a, de- a decade or more, uh, and some of the armed groups go back 70 years. And what's their, uh, what are their goals? Do they want to take the coup regime down? No, the ethnic armed groups, most of the ethnic armed groups, although they certainly make political statements and some have aligned themselves with the post-coup resistance movement, uh, these ethnic armed groups' main objective is to secure their own areas and secure greater autonomy for themselves. So they're not interested in changing power in the centre of Myanmar. They're interested in in consolidating control of their own areas. And would it be autonomy or independence? Because they're different things. 
for most of them, uh, it's autonomy that they're after. They, they realize that um, being an independent, uh, small upland uh, area squeezed between Myanmar and China or, or, or Myanmar and India is not, is not a very feasible uh, way forward. So mm. it's, it's autonomy that they want. And, you know, we saw such brave opposition from many ordinary people in Myanmar after the coup, um, people taking up arms, forming people's defence forces, extraordinary pictures, which has sort of gone away uh, of late. Do these ethnic groups you're describing, do they support the people in the democracy movement and the government in absentia, the National Unity Government? They certainly express their their support. And I think what has been quite significant for these ethnic armed groups is that because of the coup and because of this emergence of, as you say, all these armed people's defense forces in the center of the country, for the first time in Myanmar's history, it's been possible for ethnic armed groups to forge alliances with uh, militias and armed groups in the center of the country. And that's given them uh, the ability to project more force. It's given them the ability to operate in areas where it wouldn't have been possible to operate before. So that's not unimportant. At the same time, many of these long-standing armed groups have seen many cycles of power contestation uh, at the center of Myanmar. They've been through this sort of thing before. So they're not naive or starry-eyed about the possibilities. They're, they're you know, rational pragmatists who are essentially looking after their own interests. Um, and if they see that there's interest as aligning with uh, the national unity government and the resistance, uh, then they will definitely uh, uh, work together. Uh, but, but they understand that the ultimate objectives are somewhat different. Who's training them or supplying them with weaponry? I mean, there's been a, a, an informal weapons market in Southeast Asia for many decades, uh, and that continues. And that's what's been enabling armed groups to continue operating continuously through, through the last uh, 70 years. Initially after the coup, when these demonstrations, popular peaceful demonstrations were cracked down on so horrendously by the Myanmar military and many young people uh, decided to form uh, armed, uh, armed groups to fight back, they initially found it very difficult to get hold of weapons. I mean, these were urban young people who had, you know, been computer programmers and mm. trainee doctors and so on. They, they didn't know where to get arms. So um, it was initially they were just using kind of hunting rifles and whatever they could get their hands on. Uh, but over time, they forged links and alliances with some of the ethnic armed groups, and that's given them access to these weapons markets. They've been able to buy weapons via the armed groups. What are the political and military dimensions of this then? I mean, uh, dare we hope that there's going to be a real game-changing set of um, activities here or not? I think that's definitely the hope uh, of the National Unity Government and the broader resistance movement. Uh, so many people in Myanmar right now are hopeful uh, that this could lead to the political change that they want. It's given them a bit of a shot in the arm. Uh, you know, it's been two and a half years. And initially after the coup, I think the feeling was with that much popular opposition, you know, a people's revolution, there was no way that the coup could succeed. But more than two and a half years on, I think people had started to get a little bit despondent, you know, wondering where the next uh, bit of momentum was going to come from. And so this has been, been very reassuring. But I think it's important uh, that there isn't a straight line from this kind of uh, attacks and, and military weakness to regime failure and political change. The regime has a lot to lose if, if it goes down. I mean, they're fighting for their survival. It's an existential battle for them. 
And uh, you can bet that they will fight very hard when their backs are against the wall. So I think, you know, it would be premature to, to confidently predict the end, uh, but certainly this is, this is the biggest challenge uh, that they've faced. What will it show about the, the Myanmar military, I wonder? Like, just as we've actually come to uh, very much rethink our uh, views about the Russian military, what about the Myanmar military? Does this, is this exposing real weaknesses? I think it is exposing real weaknesses and it's showing that with the right combination of factors, the Myanmar military can be defeated uh, on the battlefield. You know, we also shouldn't forget that the Myanmar military is, is uh, very integrated with uh, Russian weapon systems. Over the last decade, thousands of Myanmar officers have gone to Russia for training. Um, and they haven't just come back with knowledge of how to use the equipment and which button to press. I think they've uh, they've absorbed some of the uh, Russian warfighting doctrine as well. And I think that should worry us because while the, the military might be weak in their ability to repel attacks in particular places, they retain an enormous amount of deadly equipment, uh, aircraft, long-range uh, munitions, uh, and so on. And, uh, you know, if they're desperate and, and, and cornered, uh, we can expect them to step up even more their, their uh, brutal uh, attacks, uh, indiscriminate attacks, and highly destructive attacks. And targeting civilians too. Maybe. Exactly. Mm. Uh, Richard Horsey is my guest. He's an analyst of uh, Myanmar and he's with the International Crisis Group. Look, there is this other part to the story that I flagged earlier and it's a really strange, disturbing one. China has been calling for Myanmar to crack down on scam centres that operate on the border, border regions because they've been targeting uh, Chinese people. And it, it's believed to be quite embarrassing for China that the centres are really operated by Chinese uh, criminals. What's been happening here? Yeah, I mean, this has really exploded uh, since COVID, actually. Um, and it's believed that there may be now 120,000 people working as scammers in, in compounds uh, across uh, Myanmar, mostly in its border areas. So this is electronic uh, yeah, communication scammers. So we're talking about, are we? Communication scammers, yeah. yeah romance scammers, uh, people that might be on romance apps or, or chat apps, you know, convincing you that they're somebody they're not and then... Uh, and then um, you hand over you money. Invest in a, in a, exactly, exactly. Give you access to their bank account or... or invest in their crypto scheme or whatever it might be. Um, and it's been estimated that this is pulling in, you know, more than $10 billion in revenue a year just, just in Myanmar. So this is not a small thing. Uh, it's very significant. Um, but I think, uh, you know, China, for China, it's become a major, major priority. Um, and they're not happy uh, with the progress they've been making. Yeah, now, with, the with the progress this, the Myanmar regime has been making, is that what you mean? Ex ex exactly, mm -hmm. exactly. And, you know, the twist to this story is that the attacks we saw at the end of October on the, uh, you know, in, in this area of northern Shan State on the Chinese border, they were right where some of the uh, most pernicious scam centres are located. And it seems uh, that even if China didn't give a green light to these rebel attacks, they didn't do anything to stop them mm -hmm. and may be quite happy that they're, that they're going on. And I think that is a missing piece of the puzzle for why uh, these attacks were so successful. Um, because in a previous uh, era, China would have moved quickly to shut down conflict on its border. 
Uh, now it feels that defeating the scam centres is more important uh, than, than temporary instability. Well, that is so interesting because the Chinese do have been saying for a few years they're very conscious of impacts upon their diaspora and their domestic citizenry. And obviously, it's in, you know there's a lot of Chinese being caught up in this. Is there a sense that they have been really trying to push the Myanmar military to do something about this? They after, are, after all, Myanmar's closest ally. Yes, uh, they have been pushing very hard and they've been uh, dissatisfied uh, with the uh, with the response. They feel that the Myanmar authorities have not been giving this a high enough uh, priority. Um, you know, they've been unhappy at the coup. China has been, uh, you know, feeling that the coup was a mistake. They were, they were not uh, happy. They've been um, withholding uh, diplomatic benefits uh, to, the, to the Myanmar regime. They, they didn't uh, invite uh, General Min Aung Hlaing, the coup leader, to, to uh, China for the Belt and Road Forum, for example, that he was really pushing to come to. They've allowed the United Nations Security Council to pass a resolution very critical uh, of, of Myanmar. So there are lots of signs that they're they're deeply unhappy with this regime. Mm. Um, but but this, is, uh, this is the clearest sign, I think, that they are, um, they are willing to, uh, to, to, to use their leverage across the border uh, for their own interests, even if it damages the regime. In this highly volatile mix, Richard, does Aung San Suu Kyi still matter? You know, Aung San Suu Kyi is by far the most uh, uh, popular political figure in Myanmar. She's currently incommunicado, has been incommunicado for most of the time uh, since the coup. She's she's in in prison in uh, in, in Naypyidaw, the capital. Um, but we should never uh, rule her out. She's she's not part of the conversation very much at the moment because she is uh, incommunicado. But if at any time she were to have the ability to speak. Um, uh, many, many people in the country uh, would listen. Gee. And just before I let you go, Myanmar's government in exile, um, that could be a real recipient of all this, opened an office in Washington recently. Now, is that a good way to get under the skin of your giant neighbour, China, I wonder? <laughs> Well, I think, you know, for the National Unity Government who've, who've been saying, uh, you know, that, that they will be successful sooner rather than later in, in defeating this regime, uh, obviously if they were successful, then uh, making sure they have good relations with, uh, with China would be the, the, the first order of priority. Um, so one could uh, question indeed whether, um, you know, a close alignment with the US uh, would make sense in, in, in practical or real politic terms. Um, they are seen in Beijing as a Western-leaning uh, group and, uh, and, and that may be uh, not helpful in the future, I think. Well, certainly that's a very different discussion than the one we've had of late about uh, Myanmar. It's complicated but uh, very interesting. Thank you so much for joining us, Richard. Thanks very much, uh, Geraldine. Good to talk. And Richard's the Senior Myanmar Advisor to the International Crisis Group, which uh, works to prevent wars and to shape policies that will build a more peaceful world. Find more great ABC RN stories that take you beyond the headlines on the ABC Listen app.